Greetings from Dias Air Force Base. I'm Colonel Matt Newell, Vice Commander of the 7th Bomb Wing, winner of the 2019 ADC Great American Defense Community. And I'm Greg Ridwell, Vice President of the Military Affairs Committee with the Abilene Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to ADC Live. Good afternoon. Welcome to ADC Live. As always, a big shout out to our friends down in Abilene, Texas for that intro. I'm flying solo here in DC today, uh, but not to worry. I've got many familiar faces joining me throughout the episode. To kick things off, I'm actually joined by ADC's CEO, who is out in our West Coast studio today. Hey, Tim, how's the weather out there? Hey, Matt. It, the weather is great. And good afternoon from our sunny perch overlooking the waterfront here in Seattle. I do apologize if you hear the ferry horns blowing behind me, but we're pretty close to the ferry terminal. It's a really nice spring day here, but it's also a really busy day here on ADC Live. You may not be alone in that studio right now, but I know you're going to be welcoming lots of guests in, in the next hour, Matt. Yep, yep, we'll be. We got a whole bunch of people coming in today. Uh, we're going to be joined shortly by ADC's new president, our boss, uh, Bob Ross. And then later on, a very familiar friend to ADC, Mr. Ivan Bolden, will be joining us as well. We also have a very interesting interview with Paul Kramer, the Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment, coming up as well. Great. I'm looking forward to all those interviews. But before we start, I wanted to circle back to one of the favorite topics we've been covering on ADC Live lately, and that's vaccinations. Right after today's show, actually, I'm off to get my second shot. But the news coming out of DOD right now on vaccinations overall is really a mixed bag and starting to create some concern. Many of you have probably read the headlines that the Marines are seeing a 40% vaccination refusal rate. And while the Army predicts about 80% of soldiers will be vaccinated by July, there still seems to be major gaps in reaching herd immunity in our military ranks. You know, given the role DOD is playing to help vaccinate millions across the country, it's surprising how it is playing out inside their ranks. I, I got to tell you, I don't remember being given an option to take a vaccination when I was in the Army. Uh, and I know there is also increasing pressure on DOD to take some action on this in hopes of bumping up their numbers. At ADC, we have been very focused on making sure our communities outside the gate get vaccinated to support the military. But I'm not sure we predicted it would be such a challenge to do inside the gate as well. I know, it's, it's very surprising. I know you had a chance to talk to Secretary Austin's lead on COVID, Max Rose, about the situation and how we might collaborate. Anything you could share with our viewers? Yeah, you know, we had a great discussion with uh, Max Rose. He's a veteran, a uh, former congressman from New York, uh, and we talked about DOD's approach to vaccinations and how, frankly, uh, DOD and ADC might join forces uh, to address this issue. They are laser focused on this, and for Max's description, uh, vaccinations are a full department effort. They're taken very seriously. Uh, what we discussed with Max specifically is the opportunity for defense communities to collaborate directly with DOD to make sure the vaccination message is reaching both in and outside the gate and is tied to the work that communities do to support the military. We have to find ways to use local ambassadors and local tools who can be powerful advocates for promoting local vaccine acceptance. These are ideas we shared a few weeks ago uh, with our Senate Defense Communities Caucus in a letter they sent to the department. No action to report yet from DOD on this concept, but we are hopeful we can work together and quickly 
to help end this pandemic. Well, Matt, thanks for your great work on this important issue. And let's hope this story begins to change. I know we are a bit tight on time for today's show, so we're going to do a shorter look at the headlines, and let's get started. It's Wednesday, April 20th, and here are your headlines powered by OnBase. The Pentagon leadership team continues to take shape with the nomination of Christine Wormuth as the Secretary of the Army. If confirmed, she would be the first female to serve in that position. While there have been three women confirmed As Secretary of Air Force, neither the Army nor the Navy has had a woman in their top civilian post. She most recently served as the director of the RAND International Security and Defense Policy Center and led the Biden administration's transition team for the Pentagon after Kathleen Hicks was nominated for Deputy Defense Secretary. She was the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2014 to 2016, where she served Secretaries Hagel and Carter on a full range of issues, including taking a leading role on counter-ISIS work during that time. From 2012 to 2014, Wormuth was a Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Strategies, Plans, and Forces, and actually led the 2014 Quadrennial Defense Review. She was born in Southern California in the community of La Jolla, just north of San Diego, but grew up in College Station, Texas. We're excited about the nomination, Matt, and it'll be great when we can start to engage her after her confirmation. She's certainly taken on a big gig. The Army has a lot of high-profile issues on its plate right now. Sexual assault, budget nomination, uh, housing, I mean, you name it. Uh, But I think her experience in the OSD space is unmatched, and she'll be entering a new world, but I think her connections into the leadership of the Pentagon uh, should help quite a bit. So I I hope uh, it happens quickly and we can start to work with her. Absolutely. The White House also nominated Gil Cisneros to be the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. He is a Navy veteran and represented California's 39th District from 2019 to 2021. And Susanna Bloom, formerly with the Center for New American Security, has been tapped to head up the Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation Office. Most of us know it it as CAPE. And another first, President Biden will nominate Coast Guard Vice Admiral Linda Fagan to be the service's number two officer. If confirmed as Vice Commandant, Fagan would be the first woman in the Coast Guard history to become a four-star admiral. Earlier this week, the ADC Board of Directors received a briefing from the DOD Office of Local Defense Community Cooperation, or OLDCC, on their plans to roll out this year's Defense Manufacturing Community Support Program, or DMCSP. Try memorizing those, I dare you. For those of you who may be new to this program, the DMCSP is a competitive DOD grant program that was created back in 2019. It is designed to support communities working to attract and expand defense manufacturing. The grant supports local activities such as long-term economic and workforce development programs as long as they advance defense manufacturing capabilities. Last year, six communities were awarded to receive the grants. This year, the program got an additional $25 million in funds, uh, and the proposal solicitation period is now open and it runs through June 15, with finalists being chosen by August 13. OLDCC will host a pre-proposal webinar to discuss the program and answer questions. First one being this Friday, April 23rd, and then again on Monday, April 26th. To register for these webinars, visit the OLDCC website 
or follow the link on the bottom of the screen there, uh, which we'll also include on the ADC Live website at the end of today's episode. While the program was created during the last administration, many in this current administration feel that this program aligns with their goal of buttressing our domestic defense workforce and R&D capabilities. So it's gaining renewed attention, and frankly, I wouldn't be surprised to see if it's included uh, in the DOD budget request this year. Yeah, Matt, it is a great program, and we expect to hear more about another OLDCC program announcement soon, and that's for the Defense Community Infrastructure Program, and that could happen as soon as this week. The plan is being finalized in OSD right now and will be released like similar to last year in the Federal Register. DOD has $60 million in funding this year for the program. Last year, then-Secretary Esper focused on military quality of life projects, but we anticipate that will change this year with a top focus instead placed on installation resilience proposal. Uh, in other news, uh, a recent report by GAO highlights DOD's continued struggles with readiness, despite increasing budgets over the past few years. Even in the two years before the pandemic, results were mixed with overall military readiness. While it increased in some uh, missions on the ground domain, uh, rating, readiness ratings for space, air, and cyber all struggled a bit. The ratings, on these G, the ratings are based on GAO's analysis of data for selected mission area groups of similar capabilities from across the services, such as fighter jets and other force elements within each of the five domains. GAO previously made five recommendations to improve DOD's readiness recovery that DOD did implement, though there is a separate recommendation out there that DOD established actual metrics to measure readiness by domain, uh, but that has not been completed to date. Uh, to learn more, you can find a full copy of the report on the GAO website. Last week, Secretary Austin started making moves to deal with extremism in the ranks of the military. Austin is establishing a working group led by Bishop Garrison, the senior advisor to Secretary Austin on human capital, diversity, and equity and inclusion. The group will examine how the services implement these actions and also work toward intermediate and long-range goals. This comes after Austin ordered a department-wide stand-down in January. A key action of this working group is to review and update the DOD definition of extremism and make sure that it is consistent across the department. ADC actually had a chance to sit down and brief Mr. Garrison on its One Military, One Community uh, initiative to address racial inequity in defense communities. And we look forward to continued engagement with the department on this issue, which I, definitely has implications both in and outside the fence line. Matt, that's definitely an important issue we'll be tracking. A quick in our community story for today, the California Air National Guard's 144th Fighter Wing is bringing back its Cities of Honor program. A ceremony was held last Friday morning at the Fresno Air National Guard base to honor the city of Fresno and dedicate an F-15 jet to the city by adding the city's crest to the nose of the jet. The honor is to thank the city and its citizens for their support to the members of the wing. And over the next few years, the wing will continue the city's of honor jet dedication program by dedicating F-15 to local cities within the Central Valley. What a great program and something we might see in other places around the country. As always, our daily news coverage continues on, on base. And back to you in the studio in D.C., where it looks like Matt has already replaced me with his next guest. Oh, you know there's no replacing you, Tim. 
two weeks ago, ADC's membership elected new leadership for the association. Beginning his two-year term as ADC president is Mr. Bob Ross, executive director of the Connecticut Office of Military Affairs. Welcome, Bob. It's great to be here with you. Congratulations. Thanks, Matt. Uh, though if you're anything like uh, your predecessors, you may find that taking on a full volunteer uh, new job is uh, more work than it, uh, than it should be. Well, I'm sure it's going to be interesting. It is, and uh, many of our, you know, many of our members know you, given your decade plus involvement in ADC. But some of our newer members may not be familiar with you. Could you talk a little bit about uh, your background and your work over there in Connecticut? So I'm the director of the Connecticut Office of Military Affairs. I've been there for about 12 years. Um, it's been a great job. It's been a, a, a long-term stretch for me. 12 years. How many governors have you have you worked for? So I've worked for three governors um, for about 12 years. So I'm in my fourth term and my uh, third rodeo, I call it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, two weeks ago, during that uh, during the election, ADC's past president, Joe Driscoll, walked the membership through a lot of the work ADC has done over the past few years and some of our big accomplishments. Uh, now that you're in the seat, uh, what, what can we expect? What do you got in store for us? Well, I think uh, getting us back together is going to be job number one, helping our communities and DOD reconnect and re-engage. You know, we want to implement the five pillars of our one community agenda. Um, and you can learn about those pillars on this on the website, but it's going to be to re respond and recover to uh, COVID. It's going to mean investing in our people, investing in infrastructure, promoting uh, climate resilience, and then address racism and inequality. You mentioned the reconnection piece, and I, I know we've already been trying to work towards that. Uh, we've got some exciting news about an announcement here and uh, this about an event this summer. Yeah, so you know, engaging and networking is really the highest value of ADC. So we surveyed the membership. About 75% of our members are very likely to likely attend an event, an in-person event. So um, we're gonna plan one. We're going to uh, uh, have an event in the D.C. area, July 20 through 21. Uh, we're still working out the details and the location, uh, but it's going to be a bit different. Uh, we'll follow state, federal, and local guidelines. We'll uh, strongly recommend that participants be vaccinated, and we expect about 250 people to be there, uh, and it'll be a mix between the public and the private sector. This is great. I, I know I receive phone calls all the time, not only from our members, but our friends in DOD and the Pentagon saying, when are we getting back together? You know, it's been over a year since people have had a chance uh, to network with their peers. So I'm very excited for this. Uh, and we'll be providing lots of space to do one-on-one -on -one meetings. We're, we're putting it at a time when both houses of Congress will be in session. Uh, so, you know, hopefully you can start doing Hill meetings as well. Uh, but we'll just have to see. Yeah, so last year was a really incredible year, a uh, challenging year. I think next year is going to be an incredible year of opportunity. Uh, we dealt with the pandemic, and, and now we develop a new normal. So we're going to be looking at ADC traditions and implementing new things that we learned over the last year. So our new normal will be both of those things. I'm looking forward to getting back to normal, that's for sure. Well, sir, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I look forward to working under your new leadership. Thanks for being here, Matt. Bob is not the only new face on the ADC board. The members also elected Karen Holt, Deputy Director for Community and Economic Development for Harford County, Maryland, as Vice President. And we also have four new board members, Thomas Ford, 
Director of Administration for Grand Forks County in North Dakota, home to Grand Forks Air Force Base. Scott Norton, Executive Director and CEO at the Texar Americas Center, home to the Red River Army Depot. Stacy Shepard, Vice President, Federal and Environmental Solutions with Jacobs, and Dr. Jared Wheeler, Superintendent of the Dob Noster Public Schools in Missouri. His school district serves Whiteman Air Force Base, uh, which was rated number one in the Air Force's Military Support of Families uh, released back in June. Jared is ADC's first education leader to be elected to the board. I think this is an important development given the service's increasing focus on the quality of education in defense communities. Uh, congrats to everyone. Now, tomorrow's Earth Day. So in celebration, as part of ADC's ongoing efforts to explore how communities and installations are combating the impacts of climate change, we had a chance to speak with NAVFAC Commanding Officer Captain James Meyer, serving at Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam, and also his community running partner at the University of Hawaii, Dr. Brennan Morioka. We learned about the challenges that the base and the island are going to face here in the not-too-distant future, but they've also got some unique opportunities as well. Let's take a look. Oahu is, is really a small incubator of sorts, and the base will be impacted much like any of our other uh, critical infrastructure, and that's whether it's roads, uh, ports, or even the airfields, because uh, we do share... Uh, our main airfield at the Honolulu International Airport with Hickam Air Force Base. Uh, so you know, what, what we do as a community, as an overall island and state, uh, is, is very much, um, you know, needs to be in sync with what the bases and the military is doing for all of its infrastructure as well. You know, obviously, climate considerations are an essential element of our national security, and we are assessing the impacts of climate change on our security strategy, our operations, and infrastructure. You know, it's an ongoing discussion in all of our planning processes as we move forward, because as it impacts really all aspects, not only our infrastructure, but our operations and missions as well. Uh, we have seen in, in the past years, you know, the frequency and the intensity of the storms, along with heavy rainfall, seem to be the largest concerns that we have seen and project into the future. Uh, with storm surges and flooding uh, obviously be, being a, a major concern for us. You know, roughly about two years ago, you know, we were impacted by a tropical storm uh, that passed through uh, the islands. And obviously that uh, impacted us with some flooding, uh, you know, debris and other things that we had to uh, clean up in order to resume operations. And even just this past summer, uh, you know, we had a threat of, of a hurricane, uh, although we had negligible impacts here in Oahu. In our base, if you look at the time and effort that uh, the installation takes in preparing for a storm, even if it doesn't impact us directly, it's a, you know at least a, a weak uh, impact to our mission and operations as we prepare for the storm, uh, wait for the storm to pass, and then clean up operations afterwards. And so it does make an impact, even if it doesn't have an impact uh, directly on our infrastructure. Some of the, the threats because of climate change and sea level rise uh, that the base is going to be facing is really no different than what really our entire state as an island uh, state uh, is, is going to be facing over the coming decade. A couple of our researchers who do coastal uh, engineering and they're looking at the impacts of sea level rise on our, not just our coastlines, but also in our ports. And that kind of information is extremely important for us to be sharing uh, between both the, uh, the base and our uh, commercial harbor uh, infrastructure as well. We really are gonna 
start to see some of the impacts of climate change first. And, you know, being an island state, uh, we really need to be ahead of the game and start understanding what we need to do uh, moving forward. And that includes our bases our, uh, and, and our military partners. And so I think really we will be able to help share this information and this knowledge gained um, with the rest of the world as well. So there's a lot to benefit from uh, Hawaii being able to be where we are and share the information and the knowledge that we gain uh, with everyone else so that everyone else can kind of be, be, be prepared uh, in advance as well. Uh, as, as most of you know, ADC has long emphasized the importance of resiliency, especially in the face of a changing climate, like we just heard from our friends in Hawaii. Achieving resiliency across our military infrastructure, it's a large scale concept, but it's important to remember that progress is made in small increments, and in many cases, it's being done building by building. To help us better understand how this is being accomplished here on the ground and across the country, we're joined now by an expert in this area, Matthew Sally. How's it going, Matthew? Very well. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, glad to be on the show with you here today. Oh, we're so glad to have you. Thank you for your time today. You know, Matthew, let's just dive right into it. Your company is focused on leveraging technology to better manage HVAC infrastructure, both on and off a of base. Can you give our viewers an idea of the problem that you're engaging at installations across the country? Yeah, absolutely, and great question. We, uh, we, we've we been working at over 45 military installations over the past several years uh, in, in several military uh, communities, many military communities, um, and, and really focused on uh, the preventative maintenance elements of those systems, making sure that they're operational, they're clean, and, uh, and ultimately that the servicemen and women that are, uh, you know, living alongside those systems that, uh, you know, they're, they're living in the most comfortable house that's, uh, that's available. Interesting. I mentioned during the introduction that resiliency is achieved across an installation and really across the military one building at a time. Uh, I think it can be daunting for many community and installation leaders to think about it that way and to think about all the steps they need to take. Uh, but help us understand how addressing even one building can be part of a first step. Absolutely, it's a great, uh, great question. We see uh, examples of this all day, every day. Um, for a recent example, we installed uh, some small devices that uh, record, uh, record the health of the HVAC system. Um, that system alerted that there was a potential issue with the, uh, with the machine. Uh, we sent out a, a technician to take care of it. Uh, the, the resident said, no, there's no issue with the machine. It's fine. Um, we said, it, uh, we, we just want to take a look. Um, we went in and took a look, and sure enough, uh, we had a dirty filter and a, and a system that needed to be cleaned up a bit. Um, it took us about 20 minutes to do that, and we were on our way. Um, it, it kept that resident from having to enter a service call a few weeks down the road. So uh, a very small example of just, just making our, our, our military families' lives easy day in and day out through just proactive maintenance. You know, and I know you do more than just that to really help manage infrastructure across bases, you know, all across the country. So you really have a great vantage point, I think, on how this all connects. What results have you been able to observe when multiple locations adapt new technologies uh, in terms of energy and climate resilience? It's an interesting thing that's going on. We all are aware of the uh, housing challenges that have been raised by uh, uh, by the media and other uh, other examples. One of the things that 
um, you know, we're seeing now is that the combination of energy efficiency, which you mentioned, sustainability, as well as housing resiliency, um, are all coming together on many of these installations now to uh, provide energy savings and those energy savings actually funding many of the housing improvements that are able to take shape. And those go above and beyond the basics in terms of, um, you know, just the HVAC system. Uh, other, other measures are being taken in terms of improving the lighting quality and energy use, improving uh, the water quality and water use. Um, and, and all of these measures stack together in a way that's very positive, um, but also also makes it transformative in, in, in getting them deployed cost effectively and with with a real payback. And so we're seeing um, we're seeing this make a major impact in uh, the ability to transform housing with uh, the, with good economics attached to it. Interesting. That's good work you're all doing out there. You know, I, I want to wrap this discussion by asking you to look in your crystal ball for me. You know, we talk a lot here at ADC about advanced technologies, the base of the future. Uh, just last episode, in case you didn't see it, we highlighted how robot dogs are actually now guarding installations here in, in, the, car, in the country. Uh, so when you look ahead, what is the, what's the military house of the future? You know, will, will communities have their own microgrids connected to the base? Will each house feed energy back into the grid? What do we got in store yeah, for us? Yeah, we, we we see those things among others. Um, you know, some of the some of the th discussions that we've had and conversations we've been in um, involve having housing backbones of, of internet networks that support the Internet of Things devices like the HVAC systems and lighting systems that live in the houses so that, uh, you know, we're not incumbent or reliant on the, on the resident uh, internet network, but there's a own secondary data network that holds the holds the devices. Um, when you have that sort of resilient backbone for data and, and internet of things sort of uh, devices, um, you're then able to create new use cases and value for the residents. So you're able to, uh, and, the, and the management company, so you're able to uh, turn the systems off when uh, a resident moves out and make sure that they're, you know, we're not heating or cooling a, uh, a vacant house. We're able to um, detect uh, with far more greater sophistication than we ever could uh, an upcoming problem before it actually becomes a service fault. Uh, and 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 really, that's where we're. That's where the technology is headed. It's really around resiliency and resident satisfaction. Well, that's great stuff. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> I know your first ADC event was also our last uh, ADC event. <laughs> it was yeah. uh, Installation Innovation <laughs> Forum in San Antonio. Uh, but it's it's great to see you. You know, we're going to be back in San Antonio here in November. I hope we can get you out there. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Matthew. Yep, take care. Uh, always good to see him. Pivoting now to another timely story, we're continuing Military Saves Month here on ADC Live. Today we're joined by our friends from the Association of Military Banks of America, or AMBA. I want to welcome Steve Lepper, President and CEO, and Andy Adenison, Executive Vice President for Comms and Ops. Hey gang, what's going on? Hey, thanks for having us today, Matt. Thank you. You know, Steve, last episode, we, we started this conversation and talking about Military Saves Month and really the importance of financial readiness for the family. Now, the discussion was really focused there, you know, at the family level. But your organization has this national perspective. You can see the problem and how it is actually impacting entire communities and installations. What types of scenarios have you seen play out across the country, you know, especially in light of the pandemic? Well, again, thanks for having us today, Matt. Uh, in order to 
to define our national perspective, let me just give you a little bit of information about uh, who we are as the Association of Military Banks of America. We were established in 1959 by a group of bankers who operated branches on military installations. They recognized then, as we continue to recognize today, that military families struggle with unique financial challenges. It's a profession that exposes its members to physical risk and its families to frequent moves. And our member banks are committed to providing financial services, products, and education tailored to this unique community. And our role is to assist them in their efforts. We believe that banks are the core elements of any individual's or family's financial readiness efforts. The best way to describe how important they are is to imagine a world without them, especially a world susceptible to challenges like COVID. Without banks, saving money becomes difficult or at least unsafe. Bank accounts are insured by the federal government up to $250,000 per account. You can't get that kind of safety net anywhere else. Stocks and bonds aren't insured and market fluctuations like the ones we saw last year at the peak of the pandemic can wreak havoc on a brokerage account. Without banks, spending money becomes more difficult. Checking accounts with checks or debit cards have become the primary ways Americans spend money. Credit cards issued by banks allow families to time their spending beyond their paychecks. During the pandemic, credit and debit card use went on steroids. You can't shop at home without them and many merchants won't take cash anymore. Finally, without banks, transferring money becomes more difficult and safety becomes impossible. Imagine being deployed or being quarantined in the middle of a pandemic and not having a bank account into which your paycheck is deposited every month. DOD has required since the mid-1980s that all military members have bank accounts or credit union accounts into which their paychecks are directly deposited. Unfortunately, many veterans don't have bank accounts or don't use them for their VA benefits. That's why we've partnered with the Veterans Benefits Administration and the Veterans Benefits Banking Program, a program that encourages veterans to directly deposit their monetary benefits into banks or credit unions. The VBBP seeks to help veterans avoid the fraud, theft, and high fees that accompany other ways of receiving their government funds. You know, it sounds like banks have had to evolve, just like every other institution in the military. But but going back to this, the impact of the pandemic, you know, I don't think I've been in my branch of, of the bank for over a year now. I, I imagine that's the same all across the country. How have banks had to evolve their services? And, you know, what's here to stay? What's not? Uh, how can military families get to back to some sense of normalcy? Well, I've already touched on a few of the transformations that had already been occurring in the banking industry before COVID, but went into high gear because of the pandemic. Increased use of digital banking platforms. Now there's no need to visit a bank branch for most transactions. Increased use of credit and debit cards. Cash is no longer king. Increased use of direct deposit. In the, eight, in the past 18 months, over 60,000 veterans converted from having their VA benefits paid by prepaid debit cards or paper checks to having them deposited directly into their bank accounts. Anti-fraud and anti-theft measures have become more ubiquitous, no doubt due, due to the increased incidence of fraud and theft during the pandemic. We believe that all these ways in which banks have evolved and adapted to the way we've changed our work, travel, and money habits are here to stay. How do families, military families in particular, get back to financial normalcy? 
They need to stay focused on the fundamentals, put together a budget and stick with it, establish a disciplined savings program, and learn the financial lessons COVID has taught us. If you've dug yourself into a financial hole, you need to fill it and then throw away the shovel. In other words, make the changes necessary to ensure you'll never dig yourself into a financial hole again. Andia, this one's for you. Part of Military Saves Months is emphasizing to military families the resources that are actually available. Uh, how are banks reaching out to service members and their families? Well, to answer your question, I think we need to consider why military families wrestle with financial problems. In my husband's more than 20-year Air Force career, one of the most significant financial challenges that my family faced was increased expenses we encountered by moving every two to three years or sometimes as little as one year. Um, in my career as an accredited financial counselor, I've helped military families budget for expenses as significant as finding um, a new home and a new location or as simple as buying winter clothes for your whole family when you've moved from Hawaii to North Dakota. <laughs> um, as generous as government travel allowances can be, they often don't cover all of the military family's expenses. I've been fortunate enough to work for about half of my husband's career in the Air Force. However, you know, many military spouses are unable to work in their fields because it's either impossible for them to establish any continuity in a job or potential employers are reluctant to hire a person they know will move in a couple of years. While some of these challenges have been mitigated over the years by laws, regulations, and business practices that prevent discrimination against military spouses, many barriers still remain. Many military families only have one income. Last month, Blue Star Families reported that about 42% of military spouses lost their jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic. This represented a higher rate than any than other demographic groups. The same survey found that 51% of active duty military respondents, spouse respondents, believed their military affiliation prevented them from receiving a promotion at some point in their career. So these are just some of the challenges that military families face. Banks, particularly banks on military installations, have helped military families overcome these and many challenges over the years. Many military banks employ military spouses. If a spouse is hired by a bank with a national presence, odds are that he or she will be able to transfer along with his or her spouse. If the bank doesn't have a national presence or if the family is assigned overseas, the skills that military spouses in banking acquire puts them in a great position to be hired by other banks in new locations. Banks help families adapt their financial plan to their unique circumstances. We've already talked about the importance of savings. Another important service banks provide is financial education. Most surveys actually confirm that military families prefer getting financial education from their banks and credit unions than from any other source. Banks are also sources of loans needed to bridge gaps between paychecks. Many military banks help military families repair damaged credit by reporting timely repayment of those loans to credit reporting agencies. Bottom line, banks are part of the financial safety net for military families. You know, and I can imagine a lot of bank employees are either veterans or spouses themselves. I, I think that would each also give them a leg up on being to offer timely financial advice. Uh, is that what you've kind of seen in your experience as well? Absolutely. Well, I guess, you know, one last question. 
what can our communities supporting military installations do do to support the financial resilience of military families assigned there? How can they engage with their their banks or their base or just get the information out there? Well, that's a great question, Matt. As robust as we try to make our financial product services and education programs, there are going to be gaps between what we and the employer of our military families, the U.S. government, provide. Local communities can fill those gaps. Military Saves Month provides a great example. The purpose of Military Saves Program is to encourage military families to save for the future, saving for emergencies, saving for children's education, saving for major purchases, saving for retirement. Regardless of the reason, saving money is a discipline the program seeks to instill. Our banks support the Military Saves Program but sometimes DOD and the military services don't. Communities can help military families save money by encouraging local businesses to understand their needs and tailor their products and services to fit their financial capacity. Understanding the laws applicable to the financial affairs of military families is also something local communities should embrace. Understanding the constraints of the Service Member Civil Relief Act, for example, is often the difference between a landlord understanding the right of a military member to break a lease and a legal fight between a landlord and a military tenant. We're glad that the Association of Defense Communities has established a new focus on military financial issues. We believe it will help local communities better understand the financial challenges military families face, how military families cope with these challenges, and how communities can help. After all, hospitality means understanding your guest. To the extent AMBA is able to help communities embrace their military guests, we believe we will ultimately make a positive difference in all their lives. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to do that today. Well, Steve and Dia, like always, it's great to talk with you. I hope we can see each other in person here soon. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, helping us wrap up our coverage of Military Saves Month. Uh, it's, a, it's an issue that we'll continue to talk about no matter what month it is, though. So thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. Hope Thanks, to see Matt. you in November. So yesterday, I had a chance to sit down with Paul Kramer, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment, who is also currently performing the duties of the Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment. So he's got a lot on his plate. And he's no stranger to defense communities. He's been around this association and in this world for a long time. And he's been a champion for both installations and communities uh, throughout his distinguished career. He's now in a position, though, that has a lot of eyes on it. Several key issues going on in his wheelhouse that are of real emphasis by this administration. Climate resilience, infrastructure, housing, defense workforce development, all are in his purview. Uh, but I had a chance to sit down and talk with him about this yesterday. Well, let's take a look. Mr. Kramer, I really appreciate you joining us here. Uh, you know, and there was some confusion on our end about what your actual title is these days. Uh, I think I've been calling, uh, telling everyone that you are the acting assistant secretary of sustainment, but I'm not sure that's the, the correct uh, the terminology. Is it is it acting assistant secretary or is it principal deputy assistant secretary for installations? So, um 
Yeah. So uh, first of all, thanks. Thanks for inviting me to uh, to speak. Uh, it's it's truly is an honor uh, to uh, to speak to uh, to the Association of Defense Communities. I've always held those you guys in high regard. Do a lot for the Department uh, of Defense Installations writ large in the uh, the integration with communities. And so it's it's always impressive to watch uh, you guys at work during your conferences and moving on. So so yeah. So the 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 real title, my full-time job, is the uh, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Installations. Uh, and and uh, due to the uh, change of administration, I've inherited two other additional jobs as part of that. One uh, one is the uh, the Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment. Official title is which the performing the duties of, but it is, so I've, uh, I've, been, I've been inherited those duties of the assistant secretary along with the principal deputy. And because of the, uh, the change that came with, out of the uh, 2021 NDAA, also then uh, performing the duties of the, the soon to be established uh, assistant secretary of defense for energy installations and environment. So, uh, so we're working through kind of all three of those sets of duties here uh, until we get the Senate confirmed assistant secretaries on board. Now that uh, that's all kind of underway um, and we have a new administration, how have the priorities of all of these new offices or you know, new old offices uh, shifted uh, under this new administration? So the uh, the big the big shifts really came with uh, the uh, the new administration on 20 January. A lot of executive orders flowed right out of that, literally on day one. Uh, the one that is uh, that's that's my focus in in uh, in the last few months is the uh, executive 14008, uh, and that's the uh, climate. And uh, so we're 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 heavy into writing our climate action plan. Uh, we've we've uh, done a lot with the the relook of the FY22 budget because that's facing us uh, as we uh, as we move into the summer and our budget posture. So we've we've done a lot of work with the uh, with the other offices within the Secretary of Defense to uh, put dollars where the priorities are. Uh, and then once the budget comes out, you'll see where where uh, where the dollars are going to align with the president priorities and what he has directed the Secretary of Defense to do. So we're, we're, uh, we're, we've been laser focused on, on commitment to that. Uh, this week alone is the, uh, the president's, uh, international climate summit leader summit. So, so we've been, you know, behind the scenes helping that because the secretary of defense has a panel. So we're, we're, we're preparing him, uh, Joe Bryan, which I think you guys know, he's the senior advisor to the secretary. So we work hand in glove to make sure that our, our messages are aligned within the department, uh, with the president's priorities. And so, so that's, that's been a lot of our work and, and time into that and and there's a lot of pieces that executive order on the on the logistics sides we're we're still uh, we're still uh, heavy into the COVID-19 response. Uh, uh, Lee Method leads that group for us, and she does she does a great job integrating uh, into the greater uh, Department of Defense priorities. So you know you mentioned that kind of infrastructure and climate change and your initiatives there. Are- you know, underway and aligning with the new administration. You know, there's so much talk about an infrastructure plan these days, uh, you know, bubbling around on the Hill. And is there any any talk within the building of DOD being potentially being a part of that infrastructure program, whether it's, uh, you know, unfunded MILCON or other programs like the Defense Community Infrastructure Program? 
So we're we're not a um, a named entity, if you will, on the uh, the infrastructure plan, but it, it does support uh, the Department of Defense efforts. So, you know, we we rely on um, off-post infrastructure a lot, and 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 so while we're not a direct contributor or we're not a direct receiver of the the national infrastructure plan, it's a jobs plan too. So we we do benefit in that respect. Uh, and the other piece, as you mentioned, DSIP uh, is uh, is is a priority. Uh, funding uh, uh, line for the 22 budget. So, so we uh, we we really you'll see the focus is is really going to um, emphasize DSIP, uh, the manufacturing industry. So those kind of jobs programs, those kind of uh, uh, resiliency efforts is what we're really going to focus on, and and we rely on the communities to do a lot of that because uh, with without the community support, industry support, we can't you know uh, deploy from from our in installations and do the work that the nation asks us to do. So, so DSIP is a priority uh, as, as part of our efforts going forward. And, uh, and I think this 22, 20, uh, the FY21 program, uh, I think Patrick's trying to get that one on the street, you know, this week or next week, get the, the FFO out so we can, uh, uh, we can get that uh, uh, codified by the end of the year. So. One last question. You mentioned, you know, the new positions for housing and then the position that looks at energy and environment together, you know, those are obviously two big concerns right now, specifically as it relates to PFO and BFOS. And then of course the privatized housing uh, issue that's you know been in the news so much over the past year. How, how are those issues progressing? So the the uh, we'll start with the privatized housing. So so yeah, Pat Corey leads that effort for us. A lot wealth of experience, and she uh, she did that uh, uh, within OSD prior to her uh, her fleeting up as an SES. And so she leads that effort for me. And our laser focus so far this year is to get the Bill of Rights as a commitment that the previous secretary of defense made all the service secretaries is get the bill of rights implemented. Uh, and so we have that we have issued policy, uh, on implementation of the bill of rights for all new or renewed projects. And so there's a nuance there. So if, if, uh, if we had a new, uh, MHPI privatized housing project that, that wants to get established, the bill of rights then are ready to go. Um, and so we've, we've issued guidance to do that and it'll be available for that new or renewed project. What the NDA asked us to do is, is in the existing projects, because those agreements were already in place and, and, and to renegotiate is long-term, we were never going to get there in, in a, in a, in an expedient timeframe. They asked us to seek concurrence from the existing owners, uh, to adopt the, the tenant bill of rights. And so, so 15 of them were, were made available, uh, last year, secretary of fence signed the bill, the, the Bill of Rights at that point. So 15, 18 are there. Three rights were not ones that were conducive to unilateral implementation. They required the, the in essence, the uh, the project owners to agree and their lenders to agree. And so in the last year, we've worked to codify uh, those documents. So we we now have what we believe is the, is a solid tenant, uh, or excuse me, tenant landlord lease, and that's called universal lease. That was one of the three. The other two were, were combined into that lease, and that's the dispute resolution uh, so that we bound the disputes to what's in the lease. And then the third one is rent withholding. So those are the last three rights. We've issued guidance. The uh, All the project owners uh, have said they are ready to go 
uh, once they get concurrence from their state lawyers, because that's one of the addendums in the in the lease. And we believe that we'll have all those in place for the existing residents on or about one June. Some of the some of the uh, the project owners will actually roll it out sooner than that. Some of them will actually do that in May. But our target date is by one June, have those all 18 rights available for existing residents. So when they start the PCS season this year, which we believe is going to be a PCS season, not like last year, uh, they'll adopt the 18 rights as we as we move into the the summer PCS cycle. So so once we get the bill of rights done, then we can really focus on what is going to be important and then to uh, to to the residents, and that is uh, improving the quality of the homes. And so the bill of rights is that framework we work within. In, and then we're going to adopt uh, safe and habitable standards, inspection standards for the homes, uh, so that so that we can then ensure uh, for the family members. The military department is going to do this uh, that the homes are safe and habitable at move-in, and that's really the focus. If you start the resident experience correct, then chances are, and it's proven to be successful um, over the last year. Is they're more willing, the families are more willing to accept the, oh shit, I missed that one thing, uh, if they start out right. If your partnership starts bad, there isn't anything you're going to do to make it right. You know, it's that first uh, first experience, right? If if, you, if it's a bad first experience, then you're, you're just never going to recover for it. So, so we want to focus on the between occupancy maintenance, and those are standards that we're going to go. But we want to get the Bill of Rights out so that we can then say, yep, we're done, we're moving forward into defining safe and habit. Uh, and then the, la- the other issue you'd mentioned is uh, PFAS. Uh, so we've we've made a lot of progress in uh, in in that's almost two years now since the uh, the Secretary of Defense established a PFAS task force to look at three lines of effort that we're really going after, and and uh, Congress made it clear: stop buying PFAS uh, for AFFF twenty three. Uh, phase it out in 24, and and so we're we're, we're funding a lot of research uh, to to get a PFAS free uh, firefighting foam, and um, you know the scientific community is cautiously optimistic, which in in scientific speak I think is a good thing, uh, and and so we're 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 down to about three good candidates, fluorine free, and that's the 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 dangerous chemicals that bond fluorine carbon bond. Now we'll free we free of that. We've done a series of tests in the, on the firefighting foam. The big one comes next month out in uh, uh, California, China Lake. It's a 1,200 square foot unconfined test. And if the foams can put that test out, then we, we think we have a product uh, that, can, uh, that can respond to, uh, to the milt spec. And we'll write the milt spec to, to put that in. Sir, we're, we're out of time. I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk with us. Uh, today, um, if uh, you know, we hope to to see in the future. You know, we're going to be back in person here in in DC in at the end of July. Um, you know, hopefully by then we'll have more vaccinations and people will be able to to travel a little bit more. But um, uh, look out for that because we'd love to have you over there as well. Welcome back. Uh, with me now, I have a, a good friend and mentor for probably the past 10 years, uh, Chief of Army Partnerships, Ivan Bolden. How's it going, Ivan? Hey, Matt, how are you? You know, when you walked in, I I, I couldn't believe it's been a year. I didn't even recognize you. What you, what you got going on here? Yeah, this is my uh, COVID disguise. So that way, if I mess up uh, today, uh, folks in the, that watching this will say, 
hey, I saw an old guy look like <laughs> Ivan Bolden, but he's normally clean shaven, so uh, this, this is my disguise. You, you say so. No, yeah. looking good, looking good. Thank you. Um, you know, Paul mentioned he's excited to get back in person. Uh, you, you mentioned that you might be uh, looking forward to that as well. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, you know, I, uh, right now there, uh, you know, I'm at my computer a little after seven, as opposed to commuting on in, uh, like I like it was. And last night I signed off my computer uh, about seven thirty p.m. So I think the army is getting more money, more more hours out of me. <laughs> for bang for their buck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you have your vaccination, right? I do. I have both of them. I was fortunate to go to the VA and get it early. You remember them giving you a choice when you were in the army? If no, you got a vaccination no, or not? no, I don't remember, I remember that. that either. Right? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can jump into it. You know, we had the privilege of uh, talking with Mr. Patrick O'Brien from the Office of Local Defense Community Corporation uh, just two weeks ago, and we asked him about some of the ex uh, updates we could expect for the Defense Community Infrastructure Program. You know, as a member of that evaluation panel, uh, you want to give us any insight? What can our communities at home? What they, what they think about as they start to put their proposals together. Yeah, uh, one of the things that uh, that struck me last year, being I was fortunate to be selected to be on the panel, was that uh, the commander's letter. It is really important. And you remember when we were in school and the teacher would stomp her, her foot and say, this is one of those things you should remember? Well, I'm stomping my foot and say, the commander's letter is real important. The commander must state uh, where this is in his or her priority. And uh, we had one situation last year where we had one commander sign four or five different proposals and did not prioritize them. And as a result, didn't get anything because uh, it's important that the commander states what's important. Interesting. Okay. Well, good to know. Yeah. Um, you know, also, we understand that there is a new pilot program passed in the FY21 NDAA that calls for installations to retain no less than 25% of savings realized from an intergovernmental support agreement. And what's, what's your office's role in this? Have they picked a pilot location? How's this going to work? So, uh, as you know, uh, Matt, I, I lead the Joint Services Partnership Committee. So, uh, OSC asked us to get together and sort of work through this. So uh, we're making the sausage right now. Uh, we submitted a proposal to OSD a couple of days ago. And actually, tomorrow morning, we're going to meet with uh, Mr. Mike McAndrews to discuss the to the proposal. Uh, it's still too early to comment on, but uh, but we're, we're in the process of getting it uh Getting it together. So, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, with the IGSA authority turning 10 years old in 2023, what are the, some of the obstacles or challenges? It seems like we've had to go back and tweak that authority a lot, but what else can be done? So first of all, I want to thank Congress for giving us those authorities. They've been powerful and the Army has taken great advantage of it. But there's one thing that I think is missing. Uh, there's actually three or four. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is that the ICSER is only one tool in the toolkit for, for putting together partnerships. But the ability to give the service secretary up to 
20 years. So in, to, in other words, to sign an agreement for up to 20 years would be huge for the, for the services. And we are looking so much forward to trying to, trying to get that done because we can do more large scale projects if we did it that way. Like an example. For instance, if a city wants to buy two trash trucks to to, to help with uh, uh, a service on the base, instead of uh, amortizing it over 10 years, a city would be able to amortize it over 20 years, and and and, and that would be easier on the city. back that payback Spread, period. Right, right. That makes sense. Right. Well, it's on my list. I, I promise you. <laughs> um, COVID-19 has obviously had some serious impacts on how you're able to conduct business uh, this past year, especially when it comes to partnerships. Mm -hmm. So much of that is face-to-face, -face, so much of that is relationship-based. Uh, what do you see as priority number one for your office as we get back uh, together? So the, so the big thing is our, our absolute uh, big event was going out into the communities and have strategic engagements where we met with the community and we met with the insulation. And so now as last year, we had to do it virtually and, and that presented lots of challenges, but we were still able to sign uh, approximately 18 or 20 IGSAs, even during a pandemic. So uh, as more people get vaccinated, we are looking to get now then uh, flying out and seeing people and putting some of those deals together. But you'll come see him over here at uh, in July, right? When everybody flies out here for the ADC conference? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So we'll be out here. Yeah. I always got to get those plugs in, yeah. man. <laughs> oh. Well, look at that. Uh, man, an hour flies quick, doesn't it? But, well, thank you, sir, so much uh, for your time today. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure. Um, and, you know, anything we can do to help you and your office, please let us know. Well, thanks, Matt, and thanks to ADC. We appreciate the opportunity. Now, don't go away. Tim is going to join me again to end the show. Uh, but before we do, April is month of the military child. And our report from on the ground today comes from some of our youngest community members in coastal Georgia, a 2021 Great American Defense community. Let's take out the video. April is month of the military child. So we decided to ask military children a few questions. Which parent is in the military? My mom and dad are in the military. My dad is in the army. My mom's in the military. Dad. Dad. That's in the army. Uh, I don't think any of them are because I dare my mom and my dad. <laughs> I think it's my mom. What do they do? My, I don't know. And, um, uh, I think she actually gets in the mud and splashes around like a pig. He drives buses to pick people up from the airport. She probably do like PT, like PT, like we have to do something, like we have to sing a song. What do you like about being a military child? I can see my dad at work. I'm really happy that I get to see him. Because we can have fun. I feel like my dad. Take time to honor the little heroes. Welcome back. Great video. I was just thinking about what we both have little ones similar age. And if we ever 
tried to get them to describe what we did, I think that would be a really interesting video. I can't even describe what I do. So I know uh... exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it is on a serious note this month and in, in the, this, you know, the military child month, so important this year coming out of COVID and, and all that's all the pressures that have been put on kids this year. It's just really important that we celebrate them and all they do to the, to support their families. So it's, it's been a great month. Absolutely. We're glad to give a little recognition to that important program. But great show today. I mean, a lot of information, a lot of good good guests. And, um, you know, I, I've been saying that IGSA just hit 10 years makes me feel really, really old. <laughs> but um, I, think, I think we have some great things happening and really excited about ADC Connect, Reconnect. Yeah, me as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, it'll be good to get back together. Um, and well, folks, really, that's all the time we have today. So from our studio here in Washington, DC, thanks for watching ABC Live. We'll see you next time.